0: Rolling. Welcome to a special edition of the Renegade podcast. In partnership with Rescue RN, we give you Kickstart My Heart, a revolutionary approach to resuscitation and Code Blue to take nurses who don't just do what they're told from novice to ninja. In episode one, our special guest is Melanie Perry, OR nurse and host of the First Case podcast.
1: A lot of us are scared and a lot of us codes are terrifying to us in the operating room. Because of that, somebody else is going to handle it. Somebody else is going to do it. We just need to do it. We're told. And then well, what happens when suddenly we do have to do it or we we have to do more and, and we don't have that confidence because we don't do this a lot and we don't see it a lot. It's hard. Nailed it. Renegades.
2: You know, the the it's really framed my idea of of speaking with you today, Melanie, because you know I I learned a lot about myself in this last week doing this emotional intelligence uh, class that I'm in right now, and I'm I I could be pretty scattered, but focusing especially on this topic clearly is my whole goal, and I feel like the conversation I had about this code gone wrong in in the OR makes me even so much more for this particular podcast. I want to get in the mind of an, o- of an OR nurse, like from the beginning, like, do you yeah. feel your training was adequate? Do you feel your practice is adequate? Do you feel like, how do you feel about it? What is your mindset? I mean, and this is the introduction to our show, really. What is your mindset from if you can go back to when you first started versus, you know, as you matured as an OR nurse on the nurses you work with. And then, and then again, we go back into your initial training, and then ongoing training in it and was there such a thing yeah. and from there what does a code look like in there is the response inside the OR just like are you in your own world is it different than the whole rest of the hospital oh, you don't you hit that code help?
1: blue button we don't call for help you know we manage those internally um, that's sting. so we i mean we so have should, internal alarms that we call so we call anesthesia but we're not calling your code blue team or your code any any of those code teams within the hospital we are handling our own codes We don't don't invite people in.
0: All right. Is there a protocol? I'm going to stick a pin right here because this is like, this is a perfect way to start. So to all those listening, welcome to the first ever Renegade Summit in conjunction with, you want to introduce yourself, Susan?
2: Dr. Susan Davis, Rescue RN slash founder of the Code Prep program that seems to be disrupting the world for its basic deliciousness.
0: (laughs) Lovely. And we're gonna introduce um, myself and Antra, the hosts, I guess you could say, the uh, ringleaders, and Melanie Perry, who is our first summit guest. But first, Susan, would you talk a little bit about what this idea was and why it's important to you and why we're doing this?
2: Excellent. Yes. So uh, through my my, start of my nursing career was in emergency and trauma. And back in the day when I would respond to codes in the inpatient environment in particularly you know, I would, I would arrive with all my bim and vigor and show up to find, you know, generally a chaotic response. And, you know, a lot of people doing a lot of things, except saving that person's life. And it just really confused me. I didn't understand why, why, I mean, like the actual steps. I mean, I think people's, I, I realized that their brains immediately go to the, all this advanced stuff and they immediately feel like they're not qualified. So they kind of like hesitate. And in this particular situation, it's like he who hesitates is dead. So I found that very, just, you know, I I found that I didn't care for it much. So when I went (laughs) on my education, I mean, I just didn't care. But but I'm thinking like, is this the I mean, I was new. I came to nursing later in my life and I was new. I'm I'm looking around the room. Like, am I the only one who sees that this is kind of silly? Like how long have y'all been doing this? (laughs) I mean, it just blasted (laughs) me. So it became the uh, the focus of both my master's. And then again, on into my doctorate on in-hospital cardiac arrest response how do we do it how does everyone do it how do they train for it um, what kind of resources do hospitals put toward it and ultimately what is our outcomes because if they look like what i'm seeing i'm just curious as to what the heck we're doing so the focus of this today and, and through all that i created a program called code prep i was i was tasked to create a mock code program so that would be a standard mock code program and i was about to do that and when i real and then i threw it out because i realized what we needed was a code preparation program that our teams didn't know what to do until we got there. True or no? Yep. So yep. that's yep. how this became. And I thought, you know what? I, I, y'all, I'll talk to you after minute six. I want to know how do we master the first two to six minutes of cardiac arrest? And what does that look like? Because in my mind, we've all had basic life support. And in basic life support, it's pretty clear what they say. They say, recognize a problem, call for help, begin compressions, and use your electricity. That's all I'm asking. And then you go back in all of our minds, because there won't be a nurse that we talk to or a nurse that listens to this that won't say they'll go in their mind to their code story and it'll cause them <laughs> fear and angst and, and and all these kinds of things because that doesn't happen. So my mission is for that to happen and it's twofold. Patient outcomes, yes, that's cool. Always our goal. But more importantly, for me and in my doctorate, it was self, the self-efficacy of those who are there. Like, how do you feel about it? Like, and how do you feel about it after we give you what you need, which is hands-on, brief, repetitive practice, not rocket science, just the first two to six minutes, which means you can run the code at better than anyone in that hospital without job descriptions. So what's the problem? So that's why we're here. My vision was I really wanted to share with everyone who would listen their perspective from their lens, because we all know how nurses have their specialty areas. How did the Coke blue make you feel? Because I realized when I started my studying, that not everybody thinks like a critical care nurse at all. And frankly, if they wanted to be critical care, they would. So we need, I needed to remove my critical care hat and really get into the shoes of nurses and how this makes them feel in order to help them, which I feel like I have by creating this program. It's now time to bring it to the world, which is why we're here talking with um, experts like Melanie in her field, OR, which is like a world in its own.
0: Love it. Thanks. That was a great introduction. And we're doubly, well, this is doubly cool because both Antra and Melanie are OR nurses. So they'll both have, I mean, Melanie's the uh, special guest star, but, you know, Antra will be able to chime in and pepper that. And you and I are both have a critical care background. At least that's where we started. So kind of... uh (laughs) This is like the Sesame Street thing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. So, Antra, we'll save Melanie best for last. Well, I mean, you know, special guest for last. So, why don't you, you can call me the best? I'm good with that. <laughs> well, especially. Especially best. Yeah. So, uh, my go name ahead. is
3: Antra Boyd, and I am co host with Karen DeMarco here of the RN Agade podcast. And I found Susan Davis on LinkedIn, and we um, immediately hit it off. And that's how. She came to us with this idea for a kickstart my heart, which is what she just said, a conversation with nurses about their perspective on codes. And Renegade is a nursing continuing education company that is blowing up the box of, poke your eyes out!
0: Uh, yeah, the requirements for continuing, yeah, you can listen to more about Antra and I, you know, if you go over to the Renegade podcast, you can, or go over to, well, actually the website only says about me, Commodore crazy pants, but um, <laughs> But uh, we want to focus on uh, Melanie and Susan today. And my background is just in, like I said, critical care. Antra and I host this podcast. We have a, a depth and breadth of backgrounds and following sparkly objects in our career. But this is the next greatest one. Not only the RNAGate podcast, but this is our first collabs with another company to, to, as Antra said, push the needle against the gravity of the status quo. Uh, continuing nursing education requires that you be bored insulted, <laughs> bored, insulted, and inconvenienced. And we're trying to change it to something that is relevant. We call it edutaining and like engaging and inspiring. And also something that you fit seamlessly into your life. So we want people to be able to listen to this, uplevel their skill, improve their, not only their themselves as a professional nurse, but also as a human. And without further ado, Melanie, why don't you tell us? <laughs> I oh, have sorry. to interject.
2: I have yeah. to interject because that is exactly what I'm doing. I yeah. mean, this is I mean, no. blowing up our, our 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 training that's once every two years. Yeah. And calling that adequate. It's not. So it fits right and exact with what you guys are doing. And and we are blowing that up too. Because all the giants say it's not working. We all know it's not working. And so we, but we keep doing it that way. So I'm in on the blow up. What was working and in with the new, alas, yeah, it's Melanie. It's so
3: good with Melanie too. Wait it till does. You know she got started because hers is Love a it. Yeah. too. Well, you the four of us. Tell that story, Melanie.
0: Just That's gave. what's required. Yeah, I'm sorry. blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of. That's kind of like the basic minimum requirement for being here. So Melanie.
1: <laughs> I like that approach. But then again, that's kind of my story as well. I am an OR nurse. I've been a nurse for 21 years. And in 2011, I came into the OR and it was awesome and terrifying all at the same time. And even though I was a nurse with experience, I was basically back at square one because the OR is so different from any other kind of nursing. And I, my training just was really terrible. I, I didn't get a good orientation. Well, I didn't feel like it was adequate in terms of understanding the operating room in terms of understanding why we do what we do. And so, I mean, I, I went to social media and went to blogs and things were tried to, to try to find other people, other nurses who were talking about the OR talking about, inform- you know, sharing information about what it was like. And I couldn't find anything. And so it was like, well, I can't find anything, then I guess I'll make it myself. And so that in 2018 led to the um, start of a blog called The Circulating Life, which is all about the operating room, operating room nursing. It is my life as an OR circulator, I guess, and uh, kind of a creative outlet to dump all the stress that we experience in the operating room on a daily basis, but then also a place for me to put all that info out there that I felt like I couldn't find when I was learning and new in the OR. And that led to the start of a Facebook page that's also called The Circulating Life, a very rambunctious group of people, uh, much more, uh, much more uh, informal on that site. Don't be offended if you see a few bad words here and there because, you know, it's Facebook and it's okay. And we know how we talk in the OR, but um, it's never inappropriate. I don't think it's just a little more relaxed, but it's a good place to just decompress and have a good time. And then with that following and with that Facebook page, the company that I work for now first case media, the people who wanted to start this podcast that was all about perioperative education that was all about the same thing, this edutainment. let's 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 meet people where they are, capture them on their drives to and from work when they're just sitting in their car and let's talk about the issues that are relevant to the OR. Let's make your practice better through a conversation with the experts who know what's going on. And they wanted to start this podcast, but they were not OR people and they needed an OR person. So they brought me in. And so now I am co- the co-host and social media manager and content creator for First Case Media. And I pretty much get to do this every single day. It's talk about the OR and hopefully make it better for everybody in our department because people need to know how awesome we are. Yeah. Totally. Show's over.
0: <laughs> Fantastic.
2: Show's over. That's rock star stuff. Okay.
1: Totally.
0: All right. Now over to you susan you're you're the uh, running the show here what what kinds of things are we going to ex- be exploring with melanie and everybody else on this summit
2: okay so again i founded a program called code prep and it has five main pillars and so i just wanted to kind of a real free flow conversation around those five free pillars which basically it begins with mindset what is it not only yours personally, but in your opinion, how does an OB nurse feel about a code blue? And kind of that background we spoke about earlier, you know, the training, your preparation, and then when the duty hits the fan, like what is that actually like in the OR for you? And then secondly, the the, the next area is early warning systems, acuity, sick or not sick. Do you use an early warning system in the OR? And what does that look like? And and, and are you able to communicate and recognize when someone's on the table? I mean, they're under anesthesia, some aren't, some are intubated, some aren't. What does that look like? And then your emergency equipment, how readily available is it? How comfortable are you with it? What was your training and comfortable? Are are, Are you not in general comfortable with that? Who are the key players? Rescuer one, two, and three, what does that look like in the OR? Is, I mean, we got to, we we earlier mentioned that there, you don't call it code BOO in the OR. What the heck? How does that work? And then lastly, putting it all together. When there's a code, how do you feel? Like, what does it look like? And lastly, if you feel like contributing a code story of your own, I'd like to wrap up with that.
0: All right. Well, then let's get to deal.
2: Yeah, that sounds right. great. Thanks for that. Okay. All right. Door number one. Door number one, mindset. What does it mean to have a code prep mindset? What does it mean to have a code blue mindset? How does code blue make you feel? If you can remember back in the day being a new nurse versus you said you transitioned to the OR. So, in general, how do you feel? How do you feel about code blue?
1: Okay. So, that initial like new nurse, new to something very high stakes and important, you know, you think about a squirrel on cocaine, right? Just like <sighs> in your brain just explodes all over the place and you don't necessarily know, Oh, I forgot. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Maybe I can just hide in the corner and I can just watch or Maybe they can just let me write things down because I don't really know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that was true. That, that was true in my, nursing career before the operating room. And it was pretty much true in my nursing career. Once I got into the OR too, and especially the OR, it can be kind of intimidating because as much as we say that we don't want to have this hierarchy of care and all this other thing, we very much have a pecking order and we have a hierarchy and we're as nurses, we are outranked and we are treated as such sometimes too positive or negatively. I'm not, I'm not trying to like, you know, throw arrows at anybody, but a lot of times we are treated as, as not the most important. And when it comes to a code, anesthesia runs the code. CRNAs are handling that. And so your mindset is like, who's my CRNA? Do they know what they're doing and how can I help them? Because ultimately that's, that's where you come in and where you help. What does the CRNA need me to do? What does the anesthesia need me to do? I can get the crash cart. I know where it is. Let me go do that. You know? And so that's, that's kind of the mindset ultimately that you come to is how can I be the most helpful Are there enough people in here? Do I need to get out of the way? Or can I jump in and help? And what do they need? And it's really a very assistive role in a code because anesthesia is going to be running that code 99.9% of the time.
2: So interesting, right? So, you know, you just described it doesn't matter what the scenario, doesn't matter the location. You described the same scene that I find that we, no matter whether you're OB, ER, ICU, ortho, doesn't matter, inpatient. So that first few minutes tend to be super chaotic. But you, you, you called on a couple important things. So in my mind, the anesthesiologist is going to run the code, but there could be one or two other physicians in there. Is that correct? Oh yeah. The surgeons are right.
1: right. Yeah, typically. And then how, how many nurses? When a patient starts going downhill, you have your circulator that's in the room and you have your scrub who might be a nurse, might be a scrub tech, not sure, but they are also trained in in life support as well. And that's, you know, you have your CRNA, circulator scrub, surgeon, you know, at minimum, you have four people. And then once once we start hearing that, you know, the attending anesthesia has been called overhead, your charge nurse, you know, those ears pick up and people start listening and a crutch cart goes into the room. Well, then a whole bunch of people go in the room too and you have a whole crowd. So who knows how many nurses you may have. Uh, but once people see a crowd, they also usually kind of tend to back off because obviously somebody else has this under control and they don't need me. Yeah. Um, so, but you do, you know, you're going to have Two, two nurses, probably two or three in the room at the beginning when something goes downhill, easy. Yeah. And, and you, you struck
2: a nerve on the hierarchy because I think that's a huge thing to talk about. And, and, and perhaps we'll do it right here in the mindset section, right? Because should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, you know, who's gonna, oh, well, and then, oh, they do this all the time. So I think, oh, they got it, you know, but again, he who hesitates is dead. So the first question that comes to mind, and I was going to bring this up a little further down the line in key roles, you know, rescue one, two, and three, but I'm gonna skip to it right now. Uh, Who then, who's gonna start compressions? If anesthesiologist, if the anesthesiologist is gonna intubate, if the patient isn't already intubated, I'm guessing that will be maybe their first role. uh, Who's done compressions?
1: So typically, I mean, every time I've been in a code, circulators are the ones and the nurses that are in the room are the ones starting compressions because that's what we're told to do and so like crna if that patient's not intubated as soon as something's going downhill they're they're either on the phone with the attending who's coming or whatever they've already started intubating that patient they are taking care of that very quickly very much done but that crna usually does a really good job of just taking on that mantle of responsibility till anybody else gets in the room and they're like, okay, we need to do this and you need to start this and you go do that. And so your really good CRNAs will, uh, will just tell you, start compressions. I've been lined up to give compressions before because the blue drape was right here over the abdomen and we could get the, we could access the chest from the other side of the drape and the CRNA is like working up here in the little corner and we're going around them doing chest compressions over the patient's head as best as we could reach while they were dealing with, everything that was going on on the other side of the drape. But I mean, but it just, we just line up and we just take our turn doing compressions. And it, I mean, every time I've been in a code, really, it was us and the residents, because I was at an academic medical facility. So the residents would jump in and they would also help us with the code as far as the compressions and part of it. So, so two things. One, I can even hear the, kind of the excitement in
2: your voice just describing it. And I think that's something that happens to nurses, whether they're in a like a basic life support, advanced pediatric life support class. You know, the the the, the, the your own adrenaline is pumping just talking about it, and then when you're training in it. But I, I actually got ahead of myself. Recognize the problem, call for help, begin CPR, use your electricity. So recognize the problem. Your patients are clearly on monitors. They're generally. I'm just going to go ahead and guess, right? Induction anesthesia's on board. You're a couple minutes in, and you know, what goes up is going down. So we start to Brady Brady down, you know, their heart rate starts going down. This patient codes. So we'll recognize the
1: problem. There's a bunch of people in the room. Now, how do you call for help? Depends on the facility, depends on the setup they have they have in place. I mean, really just to kind of get that blanket statement out there. But in my own experience with the, with the ORs that I worked in, we had an emergency button on um, the anesthesia machine that you would push that would automatically notify the attending anesthesia. And after we had a code where somebody didn't know where that button was to get anesthesia in there faster, we all got educated on where that button was so we could all find it. You can also always call the charge nurse and pick up your phone. When the CRNA, you see if, if the anesthesia is standing up and there's a problem, Problem going on and you know you can hear all these sounds something's not right a good relationship with your crna or the anesthesiologist in the room you know they're going to tell you call the charge nurse call people we need help go get the crash cart it really is just a um it's just a, a i don't know that just the, the communication in the room just kind of makes it happen so so for clarification when you say call anesthesia
2: i thought they were there Fred at the head they're not there Fred at the head they're not right so here
1: you have crnas who are in the room at the whole all time They are managing that patient's airway, managing their anesthesia, managing their care. But we also have attending anesthesiologists who are overseeing four patients or more, and so they are not in the room. But when something goes, no, depending on your also your facility's policies, a lot of times anesthesia is in there for the immediate induction, or they're there for uh, different parts of it, or for when their patient's waking up. But CRNA is there the whole time, and then um, since they're the attending anesthesia provider. When we have a problem, then we call them back in and then they come in and take over when it comes to that, you know, emergency situation.
2: So, so that's your rapid response team. It's the attending anesthesiologist. Is it a single human? It's not a team.
1: Yeah, it's a single human. And then everybody,
2: and everybody. Okay. Wow, man. That's really interesting. Yes.
3: I would just say, too, that like if, if, There was a couple of times in my experience where we did call in a rapid response. You know, typically Melanie is spot on. We don't like, it's all the OR, (laughs) but it's a shit show if the response team comes in because there's so many people in there and the response team knows what they're doing, but the patient is draped and the anesthesiologist CRNA is trying to like, you know, already get us on board. So I've been in a few codes where that was the case and it was worse. (laughs) And if it it just was, if it was just us, so. We're really good at managing things
1: in-house when it comes to that. Um, but and just because the OR is such a restricted area, nobody ever comes back there. So when you bring people from the outside in, then they got to stop. They got to, you know, are they going to dress out accordingly and all this stuff? And the time delay for all of that, it's just, and then anytime there's an emergency i've never just really i guess i should say i've never just seen just the attending anesthesiologist show up i've seen a couple more who are free pop their head into and be like hey can i help is there something you need what do we got going on so it really does end up being a very very team approach team effort
3: and then a so- lot of times if, the, if the patient is bleeding right if we're in the middle of surgery and the patient codes like then there's all other other complications that come up so then we're getting blood i mean it's not just like a flat out straight cardiac arrest like there's all this other stuff going on sometimes a surgeon has to keep doing surgery
0: can i ask a question <laughs> <laughs> Please. i was just thinking susan cuz you're like you know you're the guru of this and like it seems like part of your what you think your role is and what i see your role is is like okay What are the problems in running codes in general? Like, where are we? Is it ineffective that I've never thought about that? Like if somebody in the operating room codes and you're actually reaching over, you know, to get in order to get decent chest compressions, you have to be right on top of the person. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so how are you possibly getting good leverage this way? You know what I mean? Or or, are you and has any been thing been done like in the last couple decades to scientifically like using physics like how can we do this better I don't know if that kind of screws up your flow but I, I you know I'm pathologically curious and I was just thinking how do you do that you're
2: no. up <laughs> 100% my very next question because oh, okay. both of both of our or nurses mentioned the drape and I'm trying to figure out that drape and how these compressions I mean you know because I had consulted with O-R, oh, are both like a trauma or in circumstances where the chest is open. Like, what are we going to do versus a trauma patient with the belly open, you know, when the guts open and either way, we're going to do CPR. So I'm really interested in this description. Um, perfect here because the drape where it's located and compressions and how are you getting good compressions? How is, how is that possible? And how does that look with this patient? Now you, and, and, and Andrew, you just try, now surgery is still going possibly, right? Patients bleeding surgery, still going compressions have to, you have to figure out the problem and chances are it's the surgery and the bleeding. So we've got to stop the bleeding, but now we've got a, a shockable rhythm and compressions going and we've got to get the pads on and surgery's going, Holy
1: cow. Do tell. Okay. So it really depends on the operative site. depends on where in the world we're operating, how that drape is going to be affected. And one code that I did, I was part of, it was a total knee. It was a primary total knee. And um, so obviously the incision was down on the patient's knee, but they are covered, I mean, all the way up to their waist area or, or whatever with blue drapes and things that are, you know, still part of the sterile field. But at that particular moment, that doesn't really matter because we've got to get to the chest. We have to do compressions and we have step stools and we have lots of step stools in the OR. So we can pull step stools up so that even the shortest of us can get up there and get over the patient like we need to so we can do compressions correctly. Um, and then, but yeah, our surgeon is still right next to us trying to close this patient up because we have to, they got to get finished or at least get them closed. And we are trying to do compressions at the same time. In the other case I mentioned, it was much more challenging because it was a belly that was open. This patient ended up, they had, as soon as, as soon as they cut the patient open, their colon just like popped out of their abdomen. Like, you know, those old, those old things you would have the worm inside and whatever you take the lid off and pop out. It goes. That's like, that's <laughs> what this yeah. did. it was, it was, never seen anything like it. But anyway, I guess maybe somebody had mentioned the word megacolon. So maybe that is what I was looking at. But anyway, it was all up there really close to where we needed to do compressions. And so mm-hmm. we're all up working in this very tight spot up by the patient's uh, shoulders and, and head where the CRNA and anesthesiologists are, and we're trying to do compressions. So yeah, where are compressions effective? I mean, we had the monitor telling us whether or not we were doing anything, but I don't know that that really helped that much. But we did the best we could. Got a step stool in there where we could fit up, or reached over as best, and just did our best. And really, that was about all we could do, given where the patient's incision and everything that was going on with their bowel—that what was happening. Such a
2: unique experience. I mean, such a unique experience. I mean, I, the beauty of code prep. When I've adored doing uh, prep and training people in their various areas of specialty, because it looks different, you know, something you, and, and what I preach, I preach quite frequently about the standardization. I mean, you can't basic life support, advanced cardiac life support, pediatric life support. You don't get to change it. You don't get to make your rules. <laughs> it just is what it is. We have to follow our steps yet. I often describe it like a pot of chili, right? How many times you've made chili? And it comes out different every single time. These exactly. same exact steps it comes out different every single time. And you're describing that. I mean, in the OR, the, we're on the body that the patient, and then I, I imagine all these other people coming in. And like you said, I mean, so sterility is kind of out the door when you're dead, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much.
1: I mean, it's and either your life or, I mean, what are our options here? We need to break that sterile field in order to save you. We can deal with the after effects afterwards, but let's keep you alive, right? Obviously, we don't want to go like digging around and contaminating an open wound. But I mean, we we want to be observant, but also we have to save your life, So we, we have to do what we have to do. But I will say to your point about training for life support, BLS, ACLS, all these, a code just does not look like what you get trained on. The training modules don't prepare you for reality. They just They just don't. Hands down, and so I, personally, I can go through all the steps, and I know that I'm supposed to, you know, back compress and all this other stuff. But what I practice on is never what I've done in reality, and that is a very big disconnect when it comes to running a code.
0: Oh, you ding, mean ding 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 ding. You mean <laughs> chest compressions <laughs> don't feel like they do on that dummy? Yeah, no,
1: <laughs> not a bit. And and in doing. Uh, when you're doing the bag mask and you're trying to, you know, chin thrust and all this and make it work, that that mannequin just sucks. I mean, really, it's just not, it's not, it's not helpful to me to actually try to do that.
2: Well, and you know, honestly, there isn't any rules or regs um, on what type of mannequin we use other than right now that, you know, 2000, as of 2015, the American heart says you have to have a feedback device. That's the only rule. But if you look at the mannequins out there in the world, they could be anything from a blow up, you know, $10 version to a. Multi hundreds of thousands of dollars in a sim lab, you know, and so and and what works? Low fidelity, high fidelity. You know what? In my opinion, is it, whatever the, whichever one you choose, if you just use it, it'll work. It's almost like a diet or diet <laughs> exercise <laughs> program. We like okay, like yeah, looks real tough. I'm like, but you know, I'm not getting the results, but you're not doing it. So right. So to to your point, so. A quick summary about our education as nurses, right? So back in nursing school, nursing like 101, right? Adult one or adult two, you might've had a chapter on cardiac anything. It was like, we you went right on like cardiac, pulmonary, you, you went right on. We might've learned the three or four basic strips. And now you're supposed to be an expert in reading cardiac rhythms and then throw throw a little panic in the in the in the in the mix because someone's happened to be dying. And now you're really supposed to know these rhythms. You're supposed to understand and know that's a shockable rhythm, not a shockable rhythm. But we did talk about recognizing the problem, right? It's I think it's a little different in the OR because of course everyone's on a monitor. And you know, you do have your anesthesiologist at the at the head, and you were monitoring so closely. So, okay, whatever we did, this person's tanking. So we recognizing the problem is a little bit different than you guys. And some, you're, you're, I'm going to guess, sick or not sick, my my favorite word, acuity, which mm-hmm. is a, maybe a whole other podcast on the word acuity. But depending on where you work, the word acuity means a whole different thing, right? Somewhere in nursing, we decided it was a good idea to mix um, assignments based on acuity, which really means tasking. So certain patients, you'll get so many patients when you come in with your assignment. And they'll call it a high acuity patient, but it really means it has multiple tasks. This patient, the human, this lovely human, our, my mother, uh, you know, as is, is tons of medications, three assists to the bathroom, you know, peg tube, blah, 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 wound changes. And that makes this patient high acuity. Well, when I talk to patients, like uh, people like that, staff, nurses, I'm thinking like, but in my world, acuity is sick or not sick. Like if they're sick, we need to be talking about that as acuity. So, so that's a whole nother conversation, but
0: Yeah. In the, in the level of fragility, level of fragility.
2: Like for instance, an intubated patient and Karen, my word, if they're intubated, no matter how much comorbidities they have, they're low acuity for us. We got it. Like they're good. (laughs) That would be a green on my Coke prep scale. You know, like that, that's like, that patient would be a green, like steady Eddie that's baseline for that patient you Know so so that I'm moving into the visual acuity. So co prep has what's called a visual acuity. I created based on my my medic training and a cross-room assessment based on respirations, pulse and, and mentation, perfusion, if you will. So cross-room assessment, 10 seconds or less. Sick or not sick? Are they breathing okay? Is their skin, you know, what does their skin look like? Because we know what sick look like. And if they look like, hmm, I'm not so sure about this one, you know, that's your gut kicking in. That's a yellow. And we, we notify charge. And then the red is is truly, you know, they're like a red is, they're, they are sick. Like we're not, they're sweating. If your patient's sweating, you should be sweating. So really clear, but it's not just for nursing. And what I discovered in my research is a lot of hospitals implement early warning systems and there are software that's, that's for nurses to chart. Some of it gets fed in from the back, like vital, ten, trending vitals, uh, trending labs. But that information is only as good as it's being fed into the computer, not on a floor that's going to be a lot different than in the OR. So is there such thing in the OR as an early warning system? Something that helps you, other than your anesthesiologist, warn you that, hey, pending doom. Pending doom. So
1: actually, yes, but it does go back to anesthesia once again. That ASA class that our patients are given, ASA one, two, three, and four. Um, one but patients in ASA1, they don't have any comorbidities. They are a relatively healthy patient. They are here for something, probably elective, no big deal. And then it goes on up from there. And ASA4, holy crap, I don't want to be in that room with them if we're intubating them because they are much sicker patients. There's a lot more risk, a lot more involved. Um, you know, it's just, so that is, those are the, that is, I guess, what an OR nurse is cued into when it comes to our patient's acuity level or, health level or level of fragility, whatever it is you want to call it. I mean, if they're an ASA one, sweet, this is going to probably be easy, except, you know, that's not always the case either. You can't assume that, Um, you know, and so it just, that's, that's what we go off of. Can you please tell me what ASA stands for? ASA stands. It's a physical classification system. Let me see what the actual ASA. It's the American. That's okay. I, I don't need to know exactly, but basically, that's what it is. So you'll, you, you, yeah. American Society of Anesthesiologists physical Ooh, classification
2: system. Got you. Thank
0: you. Ancha.
3: And I would say also too, like Melanie is that in my experience is exactly right. That's the the level of fragility, as Karen would say, but then you know, it, I found in my experience that the nurse who is in really in tune with what's going on at the head of the table also can pick up pretty quickly when something's going on because they, they can hear the alarms aren't, they're, they're not the normal humdrum, mm-hmm. everything's going fine. So uh, oftentimes I have seen, and I am I myself, like I'll look up at the monitor and I'll be like, hmm, that seems weird. And I'll ask, I'll ask the anesthesiologist and, if you know, in my experience, they're pretty much on it. Some of them run codes better than others, but they, they are right there and they are doing all that monitoring. So that's the other thing is as a, as a nurse and also as a scrub nurse, scrub tech, whatever you, you can pick up on stuff, right? Like, are we getting a lot of bleeding? Like what's going on here? Like there's just these really, really early signs and symptoms of somebody crumping, but in an OR, you don't get to see if they're sweating. You don't get to see if they're sitting up. don't like the, the, the signs are different in an OR, right? Like how, what's the monitor doing? What's the, you know, is the patient bleeding out? Like all of these other things are the things that we have to be particularly observant of if we're going to pick up on the patient's crumping.
2: Oh my gosh, that's huge. I mean, they're covered up for goodness sakes. I mean, they're literally covered up. I mean, this is a human anesthetized and they're covered up. And so, I mean, your monitors and your anesthesiologists are, are your everything. They are. Right. Yeah. And then
1: so, your bloody laps too. They're, and the blood on the floor will also cue you in really quick if there's a problem.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the whole leak in the bucket. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. As, a, as, a, as an old trauma nurse, we've got plenty yeah. of leaks in, in, in my career as well. I mean, you know. Not
3: all OR nurses do that, right? Like not yeah. a lot of, not all OR oh, oh, nurses do that. Like they don't, there's that, that ability to kind of, pick up those really subtle signs or not so subtle, like, so it, yeah, we're not, we don't train OR nurses to pick up those signs, I guess. is the. No,
1: I don't think we do. It's something that comes with experience, comes with, honestly, it comes with bad experiences and learning in the process and, um, realizing what you need to be aware of. And then the other side too, is sometimes it just kind of depends on who your CRNA is, who your anesthesiologist is, because sometimes nurses will hear stuff on the monitor, will listen, like, it's not okay, and then you get your head bit off, because you asked about it, because you're not the one up there by the machine, you know, and so then people get afraid to say anything, because they don't want to step on somebody's toes and act like know-it-all nurse, when really, they just had a concern, they voiced it, and it didn't go so well for them, so then they shut up next time, when really, they should have said something, um, so it's just a lot feeds into that comfort level of being able to just speak up and say, hey, I don't I that sounds weird. Are we okay? You know, and just in people being comfortable, not, not that they're necessarily questioning their work as the CRNA anesthesiologist, they just want to make sure the patient's okay. And um, sometimes that comes back to haunt you, but not all the time. Yeah, but so you bring up this delicious point of psychological
2: safety, right, mm-hmm. whether it be in the clinical setting or in the educational setting, we have to feel comfortable to ask our questions, we exactly. have to feel comfortable, and everyone has to be on board with the fact that we're going to use something like a visual acuity scale, green, yellow, red, and able to say, yo, this, this patient's a yellow, and I've been trained to say what I think, <laughs> and to <laughs> whom, and I so know. it goes back to that hierarchy thing, that, that, that's just, that's literally crap. Because it, it prevents it, it prevents the free flow of more than one set of eyes, all with the same goal as this patient's outcome. So so the visual acuity really is a buster. And it's not just for the nurses. It's anyone in that room with basic life support. We include everybody because every set of eyes counts.
0: Kieran. I think that it should be a whole semester in nursing school, uh, like a course about fostering the nurse's courage to be disliked. Because- you still have a changing of the guard in the older generations, right? There's going to be, you know, it's, 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 it's a cultural thing, but something that makes them un to what Melanie was just describing, like you, you psychological safety, like things, something that makes nurses bulletproof. I mean, think of not only how far that would go in changing the culture, like if every nurse was trained in like conflict resolution, but not like, you know, the the check the box kind that we get, like really deep giving, fostering them the courage to be disliked. And not only how that would change the entire culture of the medical system and nursing in general and improve lives, but patient safety, not improve their lives, but think of what it would do to patient safety. How many patients died because a nurse was, berated into not saying something one too many times i don't know i know that's just like a you know just for it's it's that could be a whole nother call topic of discussion but just for everybody listening just as a mental exercise think about that how many times how many people have died because of what you just said
2: that's why we're here that's why we're Mm -hmm. here should i shouldn't i should i shouldn't i Mm -hmm. i think i can but then they don't you mm-hmm. know, the average response time, you guys, now I'm going to pop out of the OR for just a half a second, but in the inpatient environment across the country, the average response time for rapid response teams to arrive on scene to a code is four to point three to 4.5 minutes. Now, we all know compressions need to begin within a minute and electricity should should be used within two. So that actually runs us right into our next topic is emergency equipment. So you did describe if someone's grabbing the crash cart. So I'm going to assume that if there is not a crash, not assume, but figure out and that the crash cart's not in the room. It's not in the uh, surgical area. So it's outside of the room. So that has to come in. Uh, and then who in that room
1: tends to handle the defibrillator? I hope not me, to be completely honest, because my level <laughs> of comfort with it is, is minimal. Um, but yeah, for the ORs I worked in, we we just had one crash cart for all of the ORs. I mean, the I, I'm sure that ORs that deal with patients who are more sick or, you know, they need more, they probably have more. Um, but we almost just had one and it was centrally located where you could grab it quickly. A lot of times our board runner, if they knew that something was going on, they were the ones, you know, leaving their post running the board to go grab the crash cart and bring it in or the circulator in the room was being sent out to go get that crash cart. And, and as soon as anybody who's free in the hall sees a crash cart going down the hall, people come flocking to see what's going on, hopefully to also help and not just, you know, rubberneck, but that, you know, they want to know what's happening and see if they can help. Um, but, yeah. If I had to go get the crash cart and I'm running in there, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to do compressions. I will grab some paper and I will write notes or I'll write them on my pants leg. But I didn't ever want to grab the defibrillator because I was not comfortable with that. I mean, I had to check it when we had to like sign off that we checked it every day. So I could like turn it on and get the little reader out readout that you needed to make sure that it worked every day. But actually putting it on a patient and using it. I don't think I've ever done that. Because somebody else would do it. Anesthesia, they were the ones going to be using it, but it wasn't me. And so my comfort level, just to be completely honest, is zero. Okay. So
2: this is a delicious, again, I think I've used it for just delicious too much. Could you guys give me <laughs> an e eh if I ever say it again, please?
0: <laughs> you're so delicious. And
2: my, I think it's my word of the day. I don't know why. I've been, I've been typing it today. And I'm like, you're so delicious. I'm like, what's up with me? Anyway, <laughs> um, you brought up a, an amazing point. And this is one of my huge soapboxes. And it's just that. At what point in our careers do we become comfortable with the defibrillator? And the point that I'd like to make that I make to the whole wide world, once again, if you can be a grandma in the mall or an eight-year-old kid and grab a grab an AED, call for help, grab an AED, you push the buttons and push the button, why aren't we doing that with our manual defibrillators? Because there is in fact, one button on every manual defibrillator that turns it into an AED. So therefore, in less than 10 seconds, anybody with BLS can run that code, recognize the problem, call for help, begin compressions, put those pads on and mash that button. But we wouldn't dare, right? For all the reasons we've discussed already thus far in this, in this you know, just the short time we've been together. But Melly, what you just described is what I'm gonna guess outside of, you know, I call them crackheads, you know, ED, ICU, people who do it all the time. And frankly, whether you're in the ER or the ICU, there's usually just maybe two or three crackheads on that unit that run to these things. And everybody else is like, yeah, you're good. You're good, girl. I, I, I'll i watch all your patients. You take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do your Foley's and IV's for a month, kid. It's all you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and that's, that's how it goes. But being comfortable with that piece of equipment is the difference between life and death. Literally. I mean, have you ever been trained on the analyze function? Any of you? Function?
0: That, oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Frankly, as an, as an ER slash trauma nurse, I never even knew it existed. I didn't even know it existed. I, I actually argued. I didn't know. But if you look at the front of a defibrillator, it actually literally has, I, I call this like the greatest cheat sheet in all nursing studies of all time. It literally has step one, turn it on. Step two, push either analyze or charge. Step three is the glowing red button. <laughs> if it's glowing, you clear, push it and boop, repeat. That's how you save someone's life. So instantly everyone's brain goes like, oh, I'm not a I'm not into cardiac rhythms. I don't I don't no, I'm out. But if you just push the damn button, we're in like Flynn, we're running this code.
3: But I think what is confusing in the OR, and Melanie, you tell me what you think is that, you know, there is that it dependency on the anesthesiologist. I don't know if it's a dependency, it's it is the way it is because they are managing airway, they are managing all that stuff. So I don't know as an OR nurse, like I could, I could use an AED, like you're right. It's one, two, three, it's super easy, but I don't know that I would run into the OR or be in the OR with an anesthesiologist and a crash cart, and then just put those things on there and do that without his or her direction. And oftentimes if they're not comfortable running a code, which some of them aren't, some of them are brilliant it's like you do this you do this you do this and everybody's good because everybody knows what they're supposed to do but i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily go to that first and then when you're talking about the time it takes you know to actually save a life there's a total disconnect there right because if the anesthesia i would never ever go in there put those pads on do the one, two, three, four without the direction or the okay approval of the anesthesiologist as mm-hmm. an operating room nurse.
1: Mm-hmm. I would not do it if I was not
2: told.
3: Yeah. So well, and, and
2: that's brilliant. And of course, you're bringing us, um, where you're bringing us into your environment, which is so, which is so different. But I'm wondering, you know, is it so different just this at this moment, no matter where you are? Because almost every code I've ever been, and, and Karen, you can, you know, chime in on this if you would. I've never been to a code where there wasn't two or three providers there, and and quite often, you, like you said, Andres, sometimes they're rock stars and sometimes not so much. You know, sometimes not so much. So I always train like no harm, no foul. Oops, sorry, doc. Oops, <laughs> oops, and we push the button because all of a sudden it's going to say shock advised. Clear the patient, and and then bonus rounds while it's charging. You know, we get some bonus rounds in, which is also something that's skipped.
3: On that, Susan. that if that, if that was part of the training then I would totally supersede an anesthesiologist who hadn't said anything yet. But we're not told, we're not trained to do that. We're trained to use the AED like that, one, two, three, but with an anesthesiologist in there who's actually running a code, that is their role in the operating room. I I wouldn't do it without their...
0: Susan, why is this training not standardized? Like, why is this, why is it different? I know this is kind of like, maybe this is like like a master of the obvious question, like moto question, but like the stuff, you know, that works, that the research shows works. Why are there, why is there any sacred cow preventing step one, step two, step three, step four? Like, why, why does that happen? Tell us. <laughs> okay. Like, so why honestly, don't the- they, why don't they, why in the OR do they not do anything when, when they're told when everybody ever trained in a code should know what comes next, whether you're told or not.
2: <laughs> that's the million dollar question. I mean, I, the beauty of co-prep, it, does, I, it doesn't, I should say it, it's I, cause I am, <laughs> I don't care where you are. You can't change basic life support. And I think that's my biggest platform is to just recognize the problem, work as a problem, call for help, begin CPR, use your electricity, stat, like stat, two minutes or less. And then, and then after that, Whatever rules you have in whatever area you are, I always say, great. They can kick in as soon as you arrive. Yeah. But we're going to be rocking this thing out from that very start. But I feel you because that's the same feeling and behaviors that we see, no matter where it is in a hospital setting. Yeah. Right. So, so your,
0: it, it, your whole goal for doing this is to end these stigmas and, you know, understand what is happening in an OR and how are, OR nurses, what they're facing uh, to end that. And, to give every nurse a confidence that this is what you do, because, because they don't know that and because of the sacred cows, that's what leads to the unconscious uh, self-consciousness or the, whatever that, you know, thing that went out in our letter. <laughs> yes. yes, Yeah. yeah. Um, so is your hope that nurses listening to this, or oh, nurses or otherwise, uh, like, what is your hope from this, that they go to their nurse manager? I'm just curious, like, They go to their nurse manager and say, Hey, listen to this lady, and let's get this all standardized so we can all have confidence in codes when we all know step one, step two, step three, step four. Yeah, well, is that a question out of context? I'm sorry, not
2: Karen, not least. I feel like here's the deal you ready? I am the permission, I speak the standard of care, that is my language, and I don't care where a code is, I speak the standard of care we, we, the training we're doing is not enough. We all know this. Okay. Once every two years and a land far, far away from where the duty hits the fan is not working. And it has not been working. And all the giants in the whole wide world, they say buy our amazing program because we're the number ones in the world. And then be sure to supplement on your own brief hands-on repetitive practice in the Institute or, you know, in the clinical setting, make sure you guys do all that. But what we're recommending is once every two years and the number one recommendation in the world right now by the greats is take an online course at home and then go to a computer sign in and do it with an avatar compressions and airway which I'm not going to get into the whole airway thing, right? Because airway is not a priority in the first two to six minutes of a cardiac arrest. And frankly, working an ambu bag is something that most hospitals have respiratory therapy and they're rock stars. Most nurses do not have training in that ambu bag. And it's not even a priority, right? It's compressions, electricity, compressions, electricity. So the number one giants in the whole wide world are having us being on a computer at home, doing the class, going to a computer to log in and do compressions and, and airway. And now we're going to go into our OR and have a code and wait for the anesthesiologist to tell us what we can do. So I don't know. Do you guys see a problem with that?
3: (laughs) I I would ask, Melanie, can you share with us what that looks like in an OR for a code practice? Is that, is that where you're going, Susan, with this?
2: The the next question is, okay. So as we're leading into, okay, it goes into rescuer one, two, and three, like who's rescuer one, two, and three. So in my world, rescuer one is if you're there, you're up, that's recognizing the problem. So if you're up, someone's on the chest, you're rescuer one. Rescuer two is room prep slash support rescuer number one that's doing compressions. So like we described earlier, com- rescuer number one may be over that drape and all cattywampus just doing the best they can. So rescuer number two is the closest person to rescuer number one that says, okay, I got you. I see you a little faster, a little slower. Let me get the stool. Let me lower the table. You, we Because those compressions aren't good, right? And this is a huge point. Compressions are swell, but they need to be jam up rockstar compressions to save the brains. So people think about cardiac arrest and think, oh, I'm going to save that heart. Uh, I Save the heart. It ain't, ain't the gig. We, we don't want them going to the ICU. We want them going home. So in order to get them to go home, the compressions have to be good enough to save the brains. So rescuer number two is to su- first job is to support number one to make sure that the opt- we're having optimal compressions. Then it's room prep, meaning get all the junk out of the way you can because that crash cart's coming. And rescue number three is the crash cart grabber. Crash cart grabber shows up. Now rescuer two and three are going to place those pads, turn it on and push the button. So that's, that's where we are now, Rescue one, two, and three. And then the next section is putting it all together. What does it actually look like? And we kind of started out with that. So the training, adequate?
0: No, I want to know, Antra, after you went through one, two, and three, Antra got this smile, and I'm so curious as to what caused it. I know. The-
3: Mel- Melanie and I are just like this, so I wanted to hear what Melanie had to say about rescue one, two, and three, and because I know. Like,
1: like, anesthesia runs the codes. They They just... Do and and so like you talk rescuer one two and three CRNA anesthesiologist whoever is at the head of the bed they're gonna see that there's a problem the nurse might queue in if they are really on their toes that there's something going on but anesthesia is gonna be like hey I need this I've hit this they're gonna communicate with you for sure they're certainly communicating with the surgeon that something's going wrong with the patient so if you're paying attention you're gonna know this but. Like CRNAs, they 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 by default they're there managing that patient's airway and keeping them alive for surgery. So they are your at rescue. they are your number one person, right? And then circulator is going to. Maybe help you know clean the room out. Maybe go get the crash cart. Scrub techs that know what they're doing are going to be there with their mayo stand, trying to make sure that surgeon can close. But they might move their back table out of the way. They might make sure that the room is clean enough because maybe the crash cart has to come around the bed. Maybe we've got sea arms in there or microscopes or God knows what else that's got to get moved. So your see, your circulators are going to work. Like we have a lot of equipment sometimes that we've got to get out of there, and so we call our charge nurse, we call our board runner, we call our team leader, be like this is going to hell in a handbasket and I need some help. And so we're going to call whoever we need to, to come help us depending on what is going on in our room, because nobody could be so lucky that a code would only ever happen if you were doing a carpal tunnel, because that would be pretty convenient to get in and, and be done right No, It's going to be a crazy case with lots of stuff, you know, on a crazy bed, even more than likely, you know, try doing a code with a patient on a HANA table. And I, I know y'all aren't familiar with that bed, but you know, these fracture tables and things that just make life even harder. But, so when you, when it comes to who's rescuer one, two or three, it's like, yes, you know, whoever the team, whoever the team in the room is, we are it, we are them. And then we're going to call the the attending anesthesia. They're going to come in and they'll, they'll take over with the CRNA for running it. Nurse is getting the crash cart. We're making sure that somebody is, is taking notes because that does kind of fall to us to chart all this and make sure that times are, are accurately documented. And we're, but like, the patient's connected the monitors already. We've already got EKG and all this other stuff running. So it's not like we're going to hook up pads to get rhythm because we can get it from what they've already got. So I don't know how that plays into your, you know, knowing your rhythms or letting your, your defibrillator read it because we've already got them hooked up. So we might not decide to do anything until we do need to shock them because we're reading it off of another machine. Yeah. So, so the defibrillation pads, yeah, you, you guys have
2: the leads on the patient, but the defib pads, will also will not only read the rhythm. So you've got two screen, you know, once the defib pads are on, you're looking at your monitor and then the defib pads are reading to the defibrillator, but you got to put the defib pads on in order to shock. So sometimes if it's a you know the patient looks like, so we've already decided, you know, green, yellow, red, our patient's a yellow slash looking a little red, might be a good time to bring that card. And this is part of code prep. You know, might be time to bring that bring that card in and get those pads on and have that patient on the second monitor, the defibrillator. So so that's pre pre preemptive. So let me ask you this being preemptive, knowing this patient's a red via conversation of the people in your, in your OR. Um, and okay, so maybe one, two, and three is not, uh, and it's never, by the way, it's never your one, your two, never three. That's a whole nother conversation about code roles. And mm-hmm. and many hospitals have code roles. So one, two, and three is just the three key roles that need to happen in those first two to six minutes. And I don't care who it is, but if you were to drill, and my question is this then, if you were, so the code prep drills are two to six minutes, rescue one, two, and three, just so that those key items... We know are handled like it's got to be handled. So would you think something like drills, who's going to do compressions, who's going to grab the cart, who's going to put on the pads and are we going to push the button? Do you think that would be helpful?
1: Yeah. If you brought in all, all the different players in the OR to do it together, because a lot of times, this is my experience. I can't speak for other ORs, but in my experience, anesthesia had their own meetings and they did their training circulators and techs had their meetings and they did their training so circulators and techs (laughs) can be trained all day long to do x y and z but when you get in the or and you're also working with anesthesia they have to be trained together if we're going to work together as a team and then the Mm. group training never rarely anyway happens and so that is where i think maybe the disconnect is when it comes to that one two three and four and the steps that need to be followed and how they can piece all that together because our roles stay separated when it comes to our training yeah, excellent point,
2: right? Because, oops, sorry, Antra.
3: No, it's okay. I was going to say that's a really good point because that is that is the problem. You, you, you know, you go in there, they're running the code, they're going to assign you your role and we don't train with them and we don't, oh, well, we don't normally train. Okay, that's the first part. Yes. Yeah. If we were all on the same page, it would be so nice to be like, okay, we know, Melanie and I know what we got to do right now one, two, and three, that's it. Get the, you know, crash cart, put the pads on, right? Like we know something's wrong. Well, exactly what you're saying. Like I could do that. I was never trained to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's the discussion. That's why I'm the permission. See, I come in there and like, I, I, I rough them up. I'm like, you asked me to come in here so I can look at what you're doing. Is it working? Okay. No, that's why I'm here. So let's take a look at what we can do to make it better. And it, it, it is the permission you guys have to, I, I usually go in there. Cause I remember when I first started co prep, you guys, I'd be sitting at a table with a bunch of intensivists and be like, okay, so they're going to be, they're going to be pushing that up. They'll be shocking, you know, within two minutes and, Oh, there will be no shocking before we get there. I was like, Oh, and your name was Dr. Hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you wanted them to wait for you. Is that what I just want to write this down? Dr. Hmm. Oh, 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 Oh. Okay. So you want them to rescu- recognize the problem, call for help, begin compressions and then wait for who to arrive? You, the critical care team? I'm just confused, I wanna make sure. So to to bring this all together, it seems that if no matter where you are, whatever area you work in, uh, the training we have right now is not cutting the mustard. And I don't know about you, but brief hands on repetitive practice where it's just the meat and potatoes. This is truly, you guys, let's not make, to Karen's point, Why is this such, why is, why is what I'm saying novel? (laughs) Why is what I'm saying something we've never heard before? And uh, why is what I'm asking some big crazy thing? Because it is the standard of care and has been for hundred years. I just think maybe I'm having a louder voice and I'm not giving up. I'm not stopping. I'm not going back to work for the next and waiting for the next code. That's just not what I'm doing.
0: And this is the whole point of why we're doing this to inform more nurses. This is the problem. This is a solution. And using the artistry of common sense wouldn't it be like every first thursday of every month every shift when you start the shift you do a code Uh, you know like before you take six minutes or ten minutes before the next case but you know the charge nurse is responsible to, to ensure that every thursday or like everybody goes through the code prep once a month you know like I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it would be that difficult if it if everyone saw how important it was. And hopefully that's, you know, something this will
3: just really quickly. I want to know from Melanie, what in your opinion, why do we not practice in the OR? You would think that would be like the no brainer place. Do you have any opinion about that?
1: Well, a couple, actually. I have opinions about everything,
3: right? But the one of the
1: reasons is because I think we lull ourselves into a sense of confidence. Oh, we only do elective procedures. That That's not what happens here. You know, our patients are healthy. They're doing, you know, primary whatever's that, Or we only ever do ASA ones and twos, so we don't deal with the threes and fours, so we don't need to worry about a code or whatever. And I think that's a false sense of security because you never know how a patient's going to react to anesthesia, and you never know what's going to happen once you push those meds. And holy crap, now all of a sudden we have a code on our and so I think that's part of it. The other part of it is I think that ORs are so pressed for time. We are constantly, constantly, constantly pushed. On time starts, get this room turned over, start again. Some One OR that I worked in would not even give us time for a monthly meeting because we could not delay our start times in order to have a meeting because our surgeons weren't willing to wait. So we didn't have time to bring everybody together to do anything. And we had to always meet on an afternoon if we happened to have finished cases early and kind of hope that this would happen. But our surgeons were not accommodating To having internal employee meeting time ever. So it really depends on your facility and how much your facility pushes and demands for a monthly meeting or whatever you do for your facility. The last facility I was at did, we had a delayed start on Tuesdays. Every Tuesday was our monthly meeting and we did not start cases till eight. Doctors could just go to breakfast or see their patients early or do whatever because we weren't starting till eight every other day we started at seven but every or is not like that and every facility does not have that luxury so if you don't have the opportunity or the education time worked into your surgery schedule you're not going to get it It's just plain and simple
3: time is money yeah. in the OR. time is money in the or they do not want to sit around practicing codes that is not important well it frankly doesn't yeah, get much,
2: everywhere
0: how much time is lost and codes that weren't. Oh yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And money.
2: Yeah. And and that's a free, that's a common, that's a common feedback that I get is "Oh, our nurse is already overburdened. No, we don't have any time. I said, you know, honestly, this is, this was developed as like a no bitch zone. It's it's two to six minutes. And, and, and every time you guys, not just sometimes, but every time that this is implemented, lives are saved every time because it's it's just silly. Yeah. So to, you know, to your point, Kieran, the, the, the model that I have developed there you can do the modules basically what we just covered mindset is 20 minutes um your emergency visual acuity i'm sorry that's a 10 minutes emergency equipment getting familiar with it step one two three really tricky 10 minutes Pressure one two and three 10 minutes and then putting it all together 10 minutes it's a whole it's an hour and then the drills are two to six minutes so what i i mean i've done tons of research on how often should we do these types of drills and it's everything from, well, frankly, the research shows that after a, like any of the, like a, let's say a, a basic or whatever life support courses, like anywhere from two to three weeks, we, we lose that information. I mean, people are like, I don't know, 30 to two. I got this. Believe me, I do this all the time. No, we don't. To your point, Melanie, it's a low frequency, high risk. Cardiac arrest is not convenient. It doesn't give a crap where you are. And it doesn't care what your job description is, frankly. It's it's just, you're up. So your rest, your one, two, and three. So what I have proposed that i mean i mean weekly would be my answer but monthly for sure and people can stretch it to to q six weeks Um, most hospitals do quarterly and and then at a random if if you're not working that day then you didn't get your practice so code prep is developed where everyone the cart would be the code prep cart would be up for a week the whole week and everyone who comes for every shift has to sign off on rescue one two and three once per shift so that's six minutes per shift during that week, if you're doing three shifts or it's different in the, or right, you guys are Monday through Friday, you've got weird hours, right? Regular early morning into <laughs> on-call on yeah. stuff. I don't know. It's crazy land and <laughs> there, but whatever your schedule is like, you would, you would have to get rest rescue one, two, and three. in during that week, it's like a code prep week and then it goes away and then it rotates back around about once a month. So it's, it's just, it's frequent ongoing quality improvement.
3: seems so easy and Common sense. I just like it. Kind of blows my mind listening to Melanie and you know, recognize everything she says. Like yep, 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 yep. That's that's
0: that's why I call it pushing the needle against the gravity of the status quo. It's like just like come on, just like it's so
3: easy. Yeah,
0: but that's well, why we're doing this. I'll
2: tell you what. What a, what an amazing start to our series, Melanie. I can't. I'm so uh, I. I learned so much about being through the nurses' eyes in the OR. It's it's huge for me as a as a person who's talking about this with people all over the country. And again, I've consulted in the OR, but I haven't actually been in there. I've been in. I've trained in pre-op and in post-op. Those drills are easy uh-huh. peasy. But you, like you were describing, you know, intraoperatively, all that equipment and all that stuff. But you want to know what they say to me? Very similar that they say to me in ED and ICU. They're like. When are you going to get to the stuff that matters to us? Like, you know, we have all the special equipment. I mean, when are you going to get to the stuff that matters? You know, like in our world. And I'm like, show me those first two to six minutes. You can have from six minutes on rock star status. Just let's just give me the quick like that glowing red button. Push it. They're like, which one? Which one? Like the glowing red one. Push it. Push (laughs) Push it. No, 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 the glowing, (laughs) the glowing red one. Push it. Push it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I. So, you know what else I learned from you guys that I. I I actually put in the chat box that I wanted to ask, but we're we're out of time. But just as a statement, I saw this. Or nurses learned helplessness because everyone's in there already. Like, why do I need to? Everyone's got this. We got the anesthesiologist right there, and it's like a it's like a false confidence. And then when it really happens, they're probably the ones that feel the most insecure and want to hide in the corner because wait, everybody's always there's everybody's supposed to do this for me. You know, how much better and more confident would they feel if they just, even if they didn't have to just, I, I would know what to do if I had to, I would know what to do. And they don't get that.
2: Brilliant, brilliant wrap up. And, I, and, and to close this, I, I want to say that I think, you know, the, the title of my doctoral work was uh, code prep unit-based resuscitation skills for nurse and interprofessional self-efficacy, right? I didn't even want anything to do with the numbers. I refuse. I refuse. I don't care about time to first compression and first fib and first epi. I want to know how do you feel and, and how much better do you feel after practicing? And just to Karen's point, even if you don't use it, if you happen to be in a code, I want you to sitting there feeling like I got this rather than, Oh God, Oh Lord, you know, please not me today. Number one. And number two, and most importantly, I want you to go home knowing that you did everything you could and you go home to your family ripple effect. Not the, not the mom or dad that's like crushed internally because we lost this patient because I stood there and should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, who's supposed to, who's going to good anesthesiologist today, not a good one yesterday. I don't, you know, but I go home to my family and I cook dinner with this, you know, sense of pride and I did, I did everything I could. That's to I me mean, very big.
3: To that, I so appreciate your transparency, Melanie, about feeling like, yeah, I, you know, my in my experience, I'd be, you know, it was a cluster and it was uncomfortable and I didn't feel prepared like that. I think that's like you're gonna give so many nurses permission to talk about the that same thing. It almost makes me fear. Yeah. And,
0: and it's so, so important because
3: so honest about it. And so like like that just really touched me that you were able to just say exactly what you're yeah.
1: Yeah. Well,
3: do, I, I, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I, I
1: just, I just shoot it straight. I mean, there's no point to me anyway in hiding behind a false sense of bravado or whatever. Because, dude, I mean, a lot of us are scared, and a lot of us codes are terrifying to us in the operating room because of that. Somebody else is going to handle it. Somebody else is going to do it. We just need to do what we're told. And then, well, what happens when suddenly we do have to do it, or we we have to do more, and and we don't have that confidence because we don't do this a lot and we don't see it a lot. It's hard. Yeah, I'm
0: uh, Susan. I want you to wrap this up, but that was brilliant. What you just said, Andre, like, and especially, and what you like, or nurses, young young or old, listen to they look at your experience, Melanie, and that you've got this blog and you've got this podcast, and you know, you're shit, you Mm -hmm. know, and then wait, you're scared too. Oh, you know. At least it's giving them the confidence to say, I'm scared. I I need, I want to be better prepared to go to their charge nurses and say, I want to be better prepared. I don't want to go home thinking I could have done something I didn't.
2: Brilliant, brilliant wrap-up. The vulnerability is something that I I think, you know, I think you've all for wrapping it up with that. Because that's if we don't talk about the vulnerability and how we feel authentically, then we're just perpetuating what was. I mean, we've got to talk about it. So just bravo. Thank you so much, Melanie. It's a ama- It's amazing perspective. It really will help me. And I know it will help t- t- nurses, whether from the OR or not. And we want them to go to the OR, right? right?
1: Absolutely. Yes, we do. <laughs> we want
2: them to go to the OR. So, so we're going to train them. We're going to train them.
0: Yeah. All right. Four-way fist bump. Ready? That was so cheesy. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye everybody.
3: Nailed it.
1: Renegades.